thank you for gathering us here as your people. Uh, I ask that you would uh, help us to be present here. We all have stresses and worries and pains, things that we are regretful of and things that we're fearful of in our past and our future. And, and <clears throat> we gather here in a place like this to put all that stuff aside and focus on divine things and the things of you, the spiritual things that um, give us perspective and, uh, and shape our view of the world around us. So I ask that you would help us to put those things aside so that we can um, later on pick them up and maybe have new perspective about what it means for us, why these particular things are in our lives. Um, shape us into who you want us to be. Make us a people that are more loving, more graceful, more holy. Um, day in and day out. Help us to take these moments here where you are the center of it and make the rest of our week more and more like this. Don't let this just be the place it ends, but as we head out throughout our week, help us to keep these things with us and eventually may all of our time, wherever we are, be centered upon you. And uh, speak through me. Help me to remember the things that I've studied and communicate clearly. Um, Enlighten us, change us. Thank you. In your name, amen. All right, so I'm going to start the first half of chapter 2, verse 1. I'm calling it 1A. All right, <clears throat> it says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, dot, 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 because I'm pausing for a second, because uh, if you were here January 1st, which only like 200 of you were, thank you, the 200 who were, um, I don't blame you, it was January 1st. Um, and if you were here, then you remember me talking about the genealogy that is written at the beginning of the book of Matthew. The genealogy in the ancient world was written at the beginning of a text to reveal to your audience why you were writing the book, what your perspective is on sort of political events and religious events, um, what your background is, um, the reason that you are writing. It's all buried in the genealogy. We no longer do this, so we've kind of lost touch with how this works. Um, But he kind of explains it a little bit because in Matthew 1, I believe it's 17, He divides the genealogy up into three groups of 14 generations. Um, The reason he does this is because the Hebrew name David in the Hebrew language, um, and without going into too much detail, numbers, uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet had numeric values. David's number was 14. And so the genealogy is divided up into three sections of 14. All that to say this. Matthew starts off his book saying... This is about David. This is about David. This is about David. Over and over. It's like screaming at them, this is about David. And in case they missed it, he goes in verse 17 and says, um, and so there were 14 generations and then 14 generations and then 14 generations to remind them, in case you didn't pick up on it, Jewish readers, and they would have. This is about David. And so now we come to this passage here in chapter 2, starts off and he says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, now um, Bethlehem is an important place. Here's a modern day picture of it. Um, The city is sort of set up. It's six miles south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like the big deal, the big city, all right? This is like a podunk town outside of a huge city, six miles south. Um, And it's sort of set up like a giant amphitheater, the whole city. And a lot of the houses are built sort of into the rock. So there's like these caves, sort of a lot of them in the back of them. So a stable in which Jesus is born into would look like a stable at at the beginning of it. But then as you go back, you would sort of go into a cave. Um, and so I say all this to set this up. This is what sort of Bethlehem is. It was nothing special. Um, but the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Um, a, basically a way of saying it's like a, a kitchen where we make bread. Um, and there's one point where Jesus actually says, 
Um, he's talking to a bunch of people, and he says, I'm the bread of life. It's kind of a pun. Like, I, I was born in a bread factory. I'm the bread of life. See? See what he did? Um, and we're like, I don't get it. But back then, it had actually a lot of meaning. Maybe we'll get there sometime. Um, anyways, that's neither here nor there. So Bethlehem is not, not a big deal. It's a small town, but it had a rich history. Um, Bethlehem is where Jacob buried his beloved wife, Rachel. Um, after he buried her, he set up this um, um, sort of tower, uh, sort of pillar to remember her by so that everyone who saw it would say, well, this is where David built this. Uh, I'm sorry, Jacob built this to remember his wife, Rachel. Now, um, uh, it's where Ruth lived after she married Boaz. It is, um, and most of all, most importantly, more than anything, and the reason Matthew stresses this is because it was the city where David was, was born. Um, it was David's sort of home. Uh, when David uh, is in terrible difficulties... He tends to, in his psalms, write about Bethlehem, about the simplicity of it. There's this one place where David is in this cave, and people are hunting him to kill him, and he's sitting in this cave, and he's going on and on about, you know, you know what I want? You know what I really want right now? Like, we've been running for a while, and, like, people are dying and getting killed, and we're, like, really tired. Um, all I really want is a cup of water from a well in Bethlehem. That's all I want. It's sort of like this, um, like, deep homesickness for a simple time in his life, like childhood. You know, we've all sort of felt that. Like, I just kind of want to go home. All right, so Bethlehem is like the home and, and the, the place of David. And when you say the word Bethlehem, that's what people think of, is King David. Um, and so the Jews are expecting their king to be, because of the prophets had said this, the Jews are expecting the king that will rise up and lead them to be just like David, which means he will be from the town of David, from Bethlehem. And so Matthew starts off writing this book to the Jewish people. He's mentioned David like 12 times already indirectly, and now he says, and Jesus was from Bethlehem. So he's from the line of David. He's from the town of David. Um, All those things you think about David, I I want you to think about Jesus now. All right, your king, the one you want to follow, the one who's going to lead you like into the good thing that we have always been wanting and waiting for, this new way that we are going to live. Jesus is that person. So um, you get past that, uh, born in, in Bethlehem of Judea. Um, then it says, in the days of Herod the king, again, we're going to talk about him, psycho, next week, um, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So we have, um, here we go, Christmas ornament time, right? Wise men from the east, right? This is what you think of. Um, and it's kind of a, a cutesy tale, right? And we, we write songs about it. We three kings of Orient are. So now they're like kings somehow from the Orient, uh, whatever. Um, and we're just like adding stuff and turning it into this big thing. And suddenly they're on camels and they've got big hats. Um, and they're arriving and all, they're like, they'll gather in a semicircle around the baby and they all kneel, right? And the photographer takes a picture and it goes everywhere. Um, <laughs> And it doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem like a real thing. Um, and so I want to talk about them. What is this? Um, our modern day sort of, you know, liberal or Christian society, we, we like to kind of say, well, that's just myth. We just kind of added it in to sort of make the story more interesting and, uh, and sort of make it more grand. Like kings are visiting this baby and like, well, it's... Um, and so we, you know, we like to puff this thing up and make it big, right? Right? I mean, what's really happening here? Um, I, want to, I want to tell you a different story entirely. Um, that is backed up by tons of scholarship and things that we know because, believe it or not, things are fact-checkable. 
Um, and so we're going to look into this, and we're going to talk about this. So we're going to start right here. In the days of Herod, the king, again, psycho, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the word for the wise men, um, it doesn't mean king. The, the Greek word is magos. Everyone say magos. magos. Very good. Um, so ma- magos, um, according to um, this historian, this ancient historian named Herodotus, um, they were originally a Median tribe. Have you heard of the Medes from Medes and Persians fame? Right? So you got the Medes and the Persians, um, brutal rulers of like the ancient world, um, enslaving, pillaging, all of it. Um, and so the Medes served alongside the Persians, their kingdoms united into this massive, massive kingdom. Um, at one point, the Medes kind of look at each other and they say, What would it be like if it was just like, the Medes, period. Like, no Persians. And so they rise up and decided to kill all the Persians. Um, only they didn't do it well, and they failed, and they got destroyed. So the Medes get beaten down, and the Persians sort of put them in their place. And at that point, the Medes kind of decide, hey, what if we didn't try to conquer the world through military might? didn't go well. What if we got into, like, a new business? Um, what if we got into, like, spiritual things? What if we became priests? What if we started studying philosophy and wisdom and just sought wisdom and knowledge instead of power? Um, Because the power thing didn't work out so well. Um, And so they did this. Um, if, if If you're familiar with, like, the stories of the scriptures and and and. Christian church gatherings, um, then you may be familiar with who the Levites were. Um, Israel had 12 tribes, um, and one of those tribes wasn't allowed to own any land. One of them was not allowed to uh, have um, really a lot of money or any of the things um, that the other 11 tribes were. They were called the Levites, but they were a special tribe. They always had a job. Their job was to serve in the temple. Um, And they were like the spiritual gurus of the 12 tribes. If you needed spiritual assistance, if you had questions about God, this tribe, their entire life from birth till death, um, every one of them was dedicated to understanding the the, the ways and the teachings of God as they understood them from, from the ancient prophets and serving in the temple, helping people offer sacrifices, connecting people to the things of God. Um, That was their only job. That's basically what the, what the Medes became. Um, over time, um, the word Medes turned into the word um, mag- magi, magos, magi, and that's where we actually get our word magician um, because they delved into all kinds of sorcery, philosophy, spiritual, all kinds of stuff. Um, as a matter of fact, they became known as the people that you go to in the ancient world when you, if you weren't a Jew, if you weren't um, one of God's people... Um, and, and you were part of any other tribe and you needed assistance or offer sacrifices or you may need to make a request from the gods, you would go to see the Magi. And there came a point where they got so well recognized for their helpfulness in, in the area of spiritual things and offering sacrifices and teaching people about the gods as they understood them that the Persians actually started to like them again and the Persians actually passed a rule that you were not allowed to offer a sacrifice in the entirety of the Persian Empire unless you had one of the Magi present. So, um, they became well-known. And their full-time gig now 
was to plumb the depths of philosophy and, and religion and spirituality and wisdom and to understand these things and to teach them to the world. That's who these guys were. That's what Magos is. That's who the wise men were. Um, so what happens in this story, um, while it sounds like this big fantasy fairy tale, if you understand how they viewed the ancient world, makes perfect sense. And so I'm going to try my best to help you understand this, and I'm going to start off by giving you some sort of visuals of this whole thing. Now, in the ancient world, you existed in a time before light pollution, lights everywhere. If you've ever been to the middle of the desert or the top of a mountain when um, nighttime falls, then you have seen stars like you have never seen in your life. They are everywhere. I used to live in Anaheim in California, and you used to go up to Big Bear, and um, there's places on Big Bear Mountain where you are above all the lights, and, and when... And, and also Mount Lassen and Mount Shasta. And there's times where when, when the sun goes down, um, the skies just come alive. Like there are trillions of stars. You cannot imagine what you're seeing. You're like, how is this at all real? Just never seen it. Um, here in Tampa, you look up like, oh, there's a star. <laughs> Saw one. Um, but in the ancient world, you were very familiar with the stars because you didn't have all this light pollution that we have now. Um, and on, on hot evenings in the Middle East, instead of sleeping in their houses, they would tend to sleep either outside in front of their houses or on the roof of their houses. And they would lay there and they would stare up at the stars. And over the centuries and centuries and centuries, they developed um, a very profound knowledge of what was going on in the skies, um, of how the stars would move. They knew what star was going to be where. They could tell by sort of the shifting and the turning of the stars and the planets what time it was, how long till the sun was going to come up, what, type, what, kind of, uh, what time of year it was. Um, and once in a while, there'd be these interruptions in the sky through comets and meteors, sometimes entering into the atmosphere and burning up. And all of this seemed very divine and very spiritual. And so they developed all these theologies about it, um, religions and theologies and philosophies, all centered around stars. They, they came up with these characters. We call them constellations now. And, um, and astronomy became this just huge thing that sort of everyone understood, but it was the Magi's job to really study and really pay attention to it because other people got to work in the day, so they got to sleep at night. Um, and so the Magi, this is what they did. They studied the stars and they looked for things and they would notice that during the day, um, the sun god would rise and rule the day and every, every evening he would lose a battle to the moon god and the moon god would chase the sun god away and sometimes you would see the sun god and the moon god together in the same sky as if they were doing battle um, and so they had all these, all these different origins stories about um, how mankind was created during a battle between some of the gods because the gods were represented in the stars um, and it was this really sort of mystical way of viewing everything um, so, um, in the ancient world, it's not just that you would see sort of the message of God in the stars, it's that um, everything that you saw in the stars, it made a difference in, in, in how the world worked in your mind. Everything was interconnected. Um, let me explain it like this. Um, I can steal your car and crash it into a pole and then light it on fire and walk away, um, and it's not going to affect anything in the cosmos. Nothing. Um, it's going to smell real bad for a while. It's going to hurt the ozone, I'm sure, burn tires, all that stuff. But in the end, it's not going to do anything. Um, um, someone can commit genocide in one part of the world, and it's not really going to affect any other planets in the entire solar system or in the universe. Um, but in the ancient world, 
it was not believed to be so. Everything was connected. Everything. Anything that was going on in the world would be represented in the stars. It's sort of like the stars were a newspaper to them. Um, and instead of opening up the newspaper and reading it and saying, oh, look, um, stocks are down in this and this, and oh, look, there was a, a, a bar fight in New York City. Like, instead of that, they would look to the heavens and they would say, oh, it looks like something's going on east of us. It looks like something's going on to the south. And you would try to make sense of the world through looking at the stars because it was all interconnected. So, um, in other words, there wasn't human stuff going on and cosmological stuff going on. When something important was happening, you would expect to see it everywhere, reflected in the stars and in the heavens, okay? And the entire earth would sort of be um, a part of it. And so there's this passage where Paul is writing to this church in Rome, who this is their worldview. And he's writing to this church in Rome, and he says this, um, he says, creation waits in eager expectation like for, for God to move. Like He doesn't say human beings are waiting because as we look at it, like my dog's not waiting. Um, the giraffe at the zoo is not waiting in eager expectation. Um, but for the ancient first century people that Paul is writing to, he's speaking their language. No, all of creation... As a matter of fact, there's places in the scripture where it says, like, if we don't worship, the rocks are going to cry out. Um, so all of creation is eagerly waiting for something to happen, for, for goodness and justice to flow into this world. Um, and when things are bad, he, he talks to them and he, he says, uh, I missed it. Uh, he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Like, the earth is waiting for God to move. Um, and so this is how they understood it. And Paul, like, yes, he's in. And he just talks to them. He's like, um, so the entirety of the earth um, is waiting for God to do something. Like our sin has imperviated every part of this world. And the, the first century Roman would be like, of course it has. Of course it has. It makes perfect sense. And when things change, when God enters in and changes everything, um, then all of creation is going to be a part of it. So this is, this is how they would talk. Um, and so, uh, when something important happened on earth, you would expect that you're going to see it in the stars. And also, in the same way, when some remarkable event was observed in the stars, you're, you're expecting that something on earth changed, that, that you're going to see that remarkable, remarkable event reflected in the earth. Which brings us back to our story, Matthew 2, 2. And here's how he describes it. Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So apparently these magi, whose job it is to sit and study the stars and try to figure out what's going on in the world so that they can be aware, so they can teach everyone else in the Persian Empire, uh, they see a star. And so, again, this is one of those places where we like to just say, well, that's a cutesy little story that we threw in later. Um, didn't really happen, but like it, it aggrandizes the story, Right? Um, actually, a lot of scholarship has been done um, because this was a normal thing to them. They were looking to the sky for symbols of things to happen. And so um, there's three particular things that even, even like respected scholars like N.T. Wright like, talk openly about this, about what was the event that they saw in the sky because they obviously saw something. This wasn't added in later. This was something that they saw um, and it was captured. So um, N.T. Wright... Um, offers up a few different things, and so does uh, William Barclay and, and a few other scholars. But um, first off, in 11 BC, the famous Halley's Comet actually flew through. Um, and that's significant. That's something really important, and it was 
mentioned in different, in different writings in the ancient world. Um, although that's 11 BC, that's a little early. So, and then we have in 7 BC the alignment of, the, of, of Saturn and Jupiter. Um, and apparently, when this is done, um, when Saturn and Jupiter aligned, it, it makes a light so bright that it's like a full moon at night. Like it lights up everything. You can see it clearly. Like it's really, really bright. Um, and, but again, this is 7 BC, so that's a little early. Um, the main candidate that scholars look at um, that say this is probably what an ancient um, Median Magi would have seen that would have woken them up. Um, there's the star. I want to put a picture of it up. Um, kind of looks like a Christmas ornament. Perfect. Um, and, uh, and so this star is actually called Sirius. Seriously. Um, uh, it's also called the Dog Star, which if you Google Dog Star, it's the band that Keanu Reeves played bass for. That, ha- that was a real thing in the 90s. Um, a buddy of mine had the CD. I'm going to call him today. Be like, hey. Um, so, um, the dog star, as you're going to call it. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting event that, that occurred at that point. Um, so, this is, this is a picture actually from, uh, from the Hubble telescope. And the day it came up was on the first day of the Egyptian month of Missouri. Not Missouri, Missouri. The, the word Missouri... In, in the Egyptian, uh, it, it really basically meant the birth of a prince. So on the first day in the morning, as the sun was coming up, this star rises on the first day of the month of the birth of a prince. Um, and this, this absolutely would have caught the attention of the Magi. They would have seen it, um, and they, they probably would have written about it and debated about it, tried to figure out what it means. Um, because they, again, expected whatever is represented in the heavens is going to happen on earth. So it appears to the west of them, and so they're going to look, and they're going to say, well, it would appear that a future king has been born. Right? Now, when I'm studying, like, this stuff was blowing my mind, studying this. I'm like, wow. Like, that's, that's like, profoundly, like, logical and, like, simple. Because, and actually, you go back to the question that they asked. So, um, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And you think about this. Um, you're to the east and you're looking west because the star, the dog star, Keanu Reeves star, rises <laughs> and you're going to chase it and you're going to follow it and you're going to go to um, Jerusalem because that's west of you. And in Jerusalem is a city um, entirely inhabited by almost, almost completely inhabited by Jews um, and it's the star appeared uh, during the month, first day of the month of the prince, and so you're expecting a king. And so, what question are you going to ask in this city? Um, you're going to kind of say, "Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him." And you're like, "Ah, oh, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. That's that's a that's a good question." Um, now, I know I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, "Yeah, but it seems crazy that three people would." either on foot or on camels, whatever, I'll go with that, um, are going to travel through the desert for like 50, 60 miles because of a star. Actually, we have historical records of them doing this a lot. Um, not too much later, we have a record of them. Uh, the king of Armenia wrote, a, wrote, wrote down a record of the Magi seeing a star and going to visit Nero. Like, not too much later. Like, a year later. Like, they did this all the time. 
This was their job. This was their gig. What do you do? Well, uh, I watch the stars when something shows up. I think it has a meeting. I get my buddies. We go. We go check it out. That's what we do. And suddenly, it's not like this giant mystical thing anymore. Like, suddenly, it's just like a normal thing in the ancient world that they did. Um, And so what they do is they go to Jerusalem, and they go there, and they ask, where's the king of the Jews? Um, And they meet with Herod, psycho. And um, Herod summons the wise men secretly, because Herod doesn't know anything, because Herod, spoiler alert, it's not even really Jewish. Um, We'll get there. Um, And Herod, so he doesn't know anything. So he gathers up all the scholars and the priests, and he says, hey... They're the Magi are here, and they saw something, um, and they think a king's been born. Where would they look for this king? And what are they going to say? Well, if it's a king, we're, we've been waiting for a king. The king's going to be a lot like David. They should look in Bethlehem, six miles south. Take a ride, go out the main gate, six miles. And so they did. Um, and they go down, and they find the baby, and it says, you skip to the bottom, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, we'll get into all this um, next week. So he offers them gold, frankincense and myrrh, so they bring gifts. So here we are. This is the story that we're left with. And so I, I, I spend a lot of time sort of studying, like, these guys and this story. And, and now it's just like this simple thing. It's a little profound, and it's, it's just obvious, like, what happened now. Um, but why is it in this book? Why was it written down? Why did Matthew write it and like two of the other writers of the Gospels didn't mention it? What is it that Matthew is focused on for his audience? And this is the kind of, this, this is the kind of stuff that, that when you're studying the scriptures that you need to sit and ponder. Why would this be important to his audience? Um, and it raises a lot of questions. First off, I mean, let's back up a little bit. How, how long had these guys been running around the desert visiting kings and babies and bringing gifts and trying to figure out the meaning of the universe? How long had they been doing this? Um, secondly, what did they think when they're walking in to this stable and a, a young, poor couple and a baby is there and this is the king? There's no, like, palace. There's no, nothing, none of that. Um, they obviously didn't, they weren't Jewish. They didn't understand the, the David stuff, Bethlehem. They didn't understand the significance of the city. Um, they had just been visiting people forever. Because when something happens, they want to be a part of it. They want to be there, and they want to like, sort of tell the world what's going on. Um, and so, there's a, few, and so there's, there's a few things that sort of stand out to me. One of them is that the spiritual journey, whatever God had for them to learn, and we know what it was, We'll get there in a minute. The spiritual journey that you are on, um, oftentimes, and what I've seen is this is pretty normal, oftentimes um, it's, it's never direct. There's, you always have to take the long way around. Um, there is this path that when God is revealing something to you that you tend to have to walk. Um, and it's, it's the same thing reflected in the book of Genesis. Um, you're going to walk away and you're going to taste of all these other things. And it's not really going to give you what you're looking for. And then you're going to come back around, um, and you're going to be you're going to you're going to seek power. You're going to seek wealth. Um, you're going to seek prestige, and you're going to read a lot of thick, heavy books, right? And we fill our shelves and our libraries with these deep philosophical books or deep spiritual 
books written by really smart, well-educated people, and we take their quotes and we put them on like our social media so people will see that we're reading them and maybe think, wow, they're reading, they're smart. Um, and, and we'll plunder sort of the depths of like spirituality and philosophy and power. We'll try to meet with kings and rub shoulders with powerful people who have accomplished a lot of things. And you get to the end of it all and you find God, Emmanuel, Jesus, in the, God in the flesh, um, you find him in a poor couple in a stable with a baby. After all that they've seen. And it's sort of like God sent them the long way around. I know when you're young and you're in your 20s, you tend to think that, like, um, I'm going to have this spiritual journey. I'm going to, like, sort of understand things by, you know, like 25, maybe 28, and I'll sort of understand sort of the ins and outs of Scripture and God and the Bible, and, and I'm going to just grow from then on out. By my mid-30s, surely I'll just, I'll be like this bastion of spiritual, spiritual hope for the world to see. By my 40s, I'll write a book, change the world. Um, and I've got these just big dreams. Um, and along the way, I mean, I'm not going to try, but I'm just going to end up rich or something because the book's going to do well. Um, I'll have a lot of, the blog is going to go well too, advertisements. Um, and then you start living that life. And what you find is the certainty you were sure you were going to find by your mid-20s kind of gets pushed back a little bit. Um, and you get to your mid to late 30s, and what you realize is the only thing that is clear is that you have far more questions than you ever had before. And that whatever God is trying to teach you, he seems to be taking you the long way around. And there seems to be um, a lot of things that God allows you to go through that have seemingly nothing to do with understanding the depths of, of Christ. Um, I mean, these guys didn't find Jesus by the tried and true ways, right, that are laid out in Scripture for us. They went the absolute long way around. Um, and so in this story, there is this sense of, this sense of, like, God is drawing people in, God is present, God is aware um, of people's situation, and he is drawing them in towards him. Um, and we're unsure oftentimes of whatever God is doing, how he's leading us. Um, but also in that, there, is, there, there seems to be this word about awareness that like um, God is not found in those lofty things where you think he would be found. Because the divine, obviously, is going to be found in, in the rich and the powerful and the lofty things of the world. Um, and time and time again, and even in the, the very first story of Jesus... God is found in the stable, in the poor, poorest of the poor, not even a home. And I want you to think for a second about the, the Jewish audience that Ma- Matthew is writing to. Because his audience, you know, they are the Jewish people. They have this long, rich tradition of understanding God, knowing exactly how God works and what God does. And then Matthew writes to them, and he says, um, so you have a new David coming into this world. Um, <coughs> You have a new king. His name is Jesus. Um, he's going to come just the way David did. And then the first people that God draws in to, to, to visit Jesus, the divine in the flesh and the world ready to rule, um, is not some Jewish scholar or priest or spiritual Jewish person. It's a pagan magi from the other side of the desert whose entire existence has been all about 
these pagan things, um, and a history of oppressing and destroying and pillaging and killing and enslaving people. And Jesus calls them, and you find them there. And the story of Jesus just upheaves the whole thing. The story Matthew is going to tell over and over and over again, and you will find this, is the story that Jesus is for everybody. I know you think Jesus is just for you and your kind. Those who get it, those who are educated, those with a specific sort of lineage of fully grasping the message. Jesus, Jesus is drawing everyone to himself. And everyone's going to take these uh, wild journeys. And at the end of it all, you know what they're going to find? They're going to find Jesus. That it wasn't in these sort of opulent palaces and it wasn't in these powers and it wasn't in all... And, and it's funny because right now in this city there are hundreds of different cultures gathered right now worshiping Jesus in their culture, in their way. Um, and singing his praises and singing about the, the facets of the story of the gospel of Jesus that directly connect to them and their people. And as you travel the world and as you visit all these different places, what you see is people from all types of backgrounds gathering to worship this Jesus. Jesus is for everybody. And this is the main story that, that Matthew is going to tell his Jewish audience. And it's a fascinating story. And it's rooted in like this deep culture that we desperately need to understand. Um, and the thing that, that we need to be aware of is that, is that while oftentimes we are searching for, for God in these lofty things, um, the message of God, what God has for you to learn, quite oftentimes might be found in the waitress who was waiting at your table as a single mother and poor and impoverished, she may know and experience far more about God and what it means to exercise grace and hope and have faith and love despite her situation. She may have far more insight into the things of God than the strongest, um, most well-educated minister that you respect more than anything. That God is not found in these lofty things. Over and over again, you find Jesus going to those poor people and say, hey, you are blessed too. I know, I know we believe that the rich and the powerful are blessed, but I say blessed are the poor. I know we say the ones who, who never go through anything difficult and hard, that they're blessed. But I, and you think that God did that because they're righteous and, and God loves it, but I want to tell you, um, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the poor, poor in spirit, poor in heart, poor in money, blessed are them. God is with you. That's the story of Emmanuel. And so when Matthew starts off his book and he's writing to these people, the first thing he wants them to realize is Jesus is for them too. And don't let him pass by without offering it to them. Don't let them pass by without offering them grace, taking some time to look into their eyes and show them some love and understand that the divine very well might be in this conversation that you are about to have. Whatever God has for you to learn, you may learn it here. And you thought you were going to learn it in the book you're reading. You thought you were going to learn it at the church gathering. You thought you were going to learn it wherever. And you may just learn it in that five seconds with the cashier. Whatever it is, take the time, be aware, be present. God is leading you towards this thing. You may be taking the long way around. Um, and so we're going to take communion. It is the right response. 
Uh, we take communion every single week, um, and our servers, communion servers, you guys can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, so communion has two elements. There's bread and there's wine. Um, the bre- bread represents the body of Christ. The wine represents the blood of Christ. The body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was spilled for you. Again, the message of Jesus is subverting the rich and the powerful, that victory is not found in conquering. Victory in salvation and healing, making things right and peaceful again, is found actually through allowing yourself to be broken and poured out. This is what Jesus represents to us. This is what he did. He was broken and poured out for the sins of the world so that we could find healing not just in our lives, in our communities, um, in our country, but also our souls, the depths of our beings. Um, And so we gather, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the wine, and what it represents to us is the body of Christ broken for you and spilled for you. Wherever you are at in your journey, no matter how sinful you believe you are, no matter how righteous you believe you are, you come to the table and we all receive the same because that's grace. The Magi received the same thing that the Jewish people received, which was grace. Because we gather at the table of Jesus and that's what we receive, no matter what you bring. Um, The whole idea is that like God is saying, you're not in debt, you don't owe me anything. Come to the table, receive what I have. The debt has been paid. So let's pray and let's take some time and take communion. Father, we love you. Um, Put this deep in our souls. The idea that you are present and you are working and you are leading and you are guiding us. And oftentimes the things it seems like we're doing seem like they have no meaning, they have no purpose. A lot like how we look at a lot of the works of the ancient Magi, but they actually do because they were leading them towards your son, Jesus. And so the things that we are slaving away at every single day that seem insignificant and, influ- and, and not influential in any way, help us to trust that you are in them, that you are guiding us. Give us hope. That you will take even the smallest efforts and use it to somehow bring hope and change and healing to this world. Use us in this way. Change us. Thank you. In your name, amen.